0: one of the things that is both the best parts of preaching and the worst parts of preaching is actually the same thing. Uh, Every single week, the preacher gets to dive into the wonderful world of the Scriptures and gets to just sit at the feet of our glorious God and hear unthinkable realities. And on the Lord's Day, Sunday, I get to just tell you about them. I get to just speak about the most wonderful thing that could be spoken of, the the best possible words that could come from human lips. I get to say, your God is glorious and your God is wonderful. That's the best part of preaching. You could do that, by the way, to your neighbor every day. It doesn't have to be a preacher. That's the best part of preaching. It's also the worst part of preaching because as I speak about such wonderful things, All I'm aware of is how inadequate human words are to describe an infinitely glorious God. It's like you going to your favorite restaurant and then trying to describe it to your best friend. You're describing the richness of the flavors, the incredibleness of the ambiance of the restaurant, and then you'll just hit a point where you realize, my words compared to the actual taste are so dim, and so why don't we do this? Why don't we just go to the restaurant together? You'll hit that point where you're like, we just need to go there together. I'll get you a gift card for your next birthday. Then you'll taste, and you'll see. That's the pain of being a preacher. You spend a week in unbelievable realities, and then you're painfully aware of your words are just a dim echo. But in that frustrating reality, there's also a very comforting Joyful reality, because though my voice will be a dim echo, the voice of the Spirit is an infinitely powerful one that can actually open your eyes, that can actually bring you to the Savior that we're going to look at today, that can actually draw you near to the Savior who has his arms and his heart wide open to you, and you can actually, by his power, Taste and see. It's not a great intro, but I'm just letting you know we have a wonderful passage today, a wonderful reality before us, and my only hope is that you might not hear my words, you might hear the words of your. This is gonna be rough, goodness gracious. Gentle and lowly, Savior, looking at you, holding your gaze and saying, Come here, lay down the burdens that are crushing you right now. Come to me, weary and heavy laden. I have rest for you. I am gentle and I am lowly. A bruised reed I will not break. We get to see today... In this passage, what Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher, called one of the most unique passages in Scripture. Because it's the only time where we get to hear God actually tell you what his heart is like. You can know a lot about God by his actions. You see God, uh, you see Jesus eating with the poor. And you can say, okay, well, he's compassionate. Only a compassionate God would do that. It's another thing to hear Jesus say, I am gentle and lowly in heart and describe with you from his own lips what he is like. So the whole passage that we're gonna look at today is about the revelation of who your God is and we get to hear it from his very lips. What is the heart of God like? We don't need tablets of stone to see. We don't need Moses coming down the mountain. God himself has come down and he's gonna say, here's what my heart is like. He's going to bring a revelation of who our God is. That's what we're going to see today, who Jesus is and then by implication, who his father is. Because you see Jesus' heart, you see the father's heart. So we look at three things today. I'll get it together. Three things about the revelation of God. Number one, who gets the revelation? Who is it that gets to receive the revelation of who God is? Who gives The revelation, who tells us who gives the revelation, and then who is the revelation? Who gets it, who gives it, and who is it? The revelation of God. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, we preach through little segments of the Bible, which can sometimes throw us off because Matthew isn't just writing hundreds of little tiny paragraphs and putting them in kind of a compilation. He's writing a story. And if you remember, in fact, these first few words at that time are meant to cue in our brains. Jesus is speaking in context. Jesus isn't just giving a random thought This is connected to a story, and the story it's connected to is all of Matthew 11. Lee preached last week one of the maybe most sobering, uh, one of the biggest warnings that Jesus ever gave. He's looking at these cities that he's visited, that he's done a lot of ministry, and then they've rejected him. They've said, no thanks. And so Jesus has gone through and said, woe to you, it will be worse for you than Sodom and Gomorrah. The worst possible city in the scriptures will have it better on the day of judgment than you because you've rejected me. So, in the midst of one of the most sobering warnings, Jesus turns and says this. At that time, Jesus breaks out in prayer. Not just prayer, but a prayer of thanksgiving. Look at verse 25 again. Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So Jesus breaks out in a prayer of praise, a prayer of thanksgiving, and he thanks God the Father for two things. One, he's hidden them from the wise. He's hidden these things, the the revelation of who he is. That's what the cities have done. They've rejected him. Jesus is hidden from them by the Father, hidden these things from the wise, and God has revealed them, to children. So let's look at these two things. First of all, the wise Again, in the context of the story, the wise are these cities that have rejected Jesus. Jesus has done a lot of ministry there in Capernaum and all these different places that Lee walked us through last week, and they've said, no thanks. We've got our oral traditions. We've got our Pharisee rabbis. And so we're, we're good. We don't need this homeless carpenter rabbi to tell us what to do those are the wise and they're meant to be representing of a larger issue in the human heart so what is the issue that these cities are representing this idea of being wise and understanding now the question that you should be thinking is why is that a bad thing is jesus saying he wants us to be dumb right is that what the little kids analogy is we'll get to that in just a second jesus here isn't saying that. That wouldn't make any sense. Jesus is not saying he wants us to be anti-intellectual. Rather, what he's pointing out is people who are wise and understanding in their own eyes. People who very much trust their own wisdom and understanding. Let me say it this way. People who think, I know everything already. I don't need anything extra. Again, homeless Jewish carpenter. I'm good. I've got our oral traditions. We're set on the wisdom department. We don't need this. We're good. We've got all that we need up here. Again, this is something we've seen all through Matthew. Jesus goes and shows up and he says, what? Those who are perfectly healthy, those who think they're perfectly healthy, though they're riddled with sickness. Those who are perfectly healthy need no doctor. Jesus walks by and they say, I'm good. Perfect bill of health. Those who are righteous need no savior. I didn't come for the righteous, Jesus says. They don't think they need me. We're seeing this theme again. Those who think in their minds, I'm good. I don't need you. I'm already righteous. Why do I need extra righteousness from you if my tank is already full? Jesus says, God hides the revelation of who his son is, and again, by implication, who he is, from those who think they don't need him. So if you want to know how you miss Jesus, put a lot of trust in your own understanding. Put a lot of trust in your ability to reason your way through life, and listen to our very, very, very loud culture that wants to feed that poison. Your political culture, your church culture, especially, I'm not talking about postmodernism, also dangerous, but our nice conservative culture. What is the thing we hear most? If only the world wasn't so dumb, we wouldn't have all these bad policies. If only the world wasn't so dumb. And I don't know, they like read the Bible for once. We wouldn't have all this wokeness in the church. You even live in the state that says that, right? Why is Texas the best? I don't know, just because we are. It's not our fault all the other states don't want to be awesome like like us. And just because it's true doesn't mean it's not bad for your heart, right? Why is half this room California right now, okay? Now you're getting to witness. See, my heart's just like, yeah, that's right. Texas is the best. Your world wants you thinking you're wise, you're smart. Everybody else isn't. If the world was more like you, all of our problems would go away. And just to make sure we're really, really in that kind of cynical mindset, we had some nice podcasts and some funny blogs that just flow through our inboxes every week that point out how stupid the world is. And we're just like, oh, how dumb everybody else is. Your world, your conservative world, very, very much is preparing you to miss Jesus. And you need to be appropriately terrified and very much be on guard. You will drift that way if you're not careful. Your heart will grow hard and cynical, and you will mock very, very, very quickly. And you won't be able to think of a liberal without your heart cramping with frustration because sin is taking you exactly where it wants to. Trust in yourself. And when the Savior shows up and says you're sick and you're a sinner and you need a Savior, you'll say, No thanks, I'm pretty sure I'm good. I've got a lot of other dumb people that are worse than me that I can point to. That's your world. We haven't even gotten into the poisons of postmodernism. That's our safe world, very much taking us down that path. We need to be appropriately terrified. God hides these things from the wise and from the understanding, those who trust in themselves, those who think, I need no savior. That's who he hides it from. Who does he reveal it Look at verse 25 again. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children, little children. So what does that mean? Uh, It's really, really important not to understand little kid analogies. Uh, I had a youth pastor who heard a sermon about being childlike and then we went and TP'd somebody's house. And as an adult, I'm like, I think I had a bad youth pastor, right? That's not... What does he mean by this? Jesus is not saying he wants us to be immature like kids. He's also saying he doesn't want us to be, he's not saying he wants us to be anti-intellectual like kids. My kids shove uh, coffee beans up their nose. God is not like, that's what I'm talking about. Why aren't you guys doing this? I made it so clear. Be like little kids, right? That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying, in contrast to the arrogant cities who trust in their own understanding, have a childlike Humility that knows I need to be taught. I need a guide to show me the way. I need someone to teach me how to speak and how to crawl and how to walk and to shovel food into my mouth until I can lift my arms appropriately. Have the childlike humility that knows I need badly. Think of a kid's relationship to their parents. Yes, they're sinful. Yes, they disobey you, but they're little sponges. Why is the sun yellow? They just ask a million questions because they assume you know and you're there to teach them. That's the position they put themselves in. You know everything, I need to learn everything. And then they become teenagers and that flips. And then they become adults again and they say they're sorry, right? Once they have kids. That's how it goes. Jesus is saying here, put yourself in that position. Know that you need. Have a childlike humility. Be humble. That is who God reveals his son to. And again, we've seen this all through Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know there is no riches Here, if I'm going to have a penny to my name, I need to get it from my glorious Savior who has all the infinite riches. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know. I need. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't come for the healthy, he came for the sick. Those who know they need a doctor. I came not for the righteous, those who trust in their own wisdom, but sinners, those who know they need savior, that's who God reveals his son to. That's who gets the revelation. One of the marks of a disciple, one of the marks of a disciple of Jesus Christ who puts himself under the fountain of God's revelation is that they're humble. Humble, hungry, you could say, and teachable. They're humble, they know they need, they know they don't know, they need a teacher, they're hungry, they're desirous for teaching. They don't just say, I'm dumb and I'm staying dumb. They say, teach me, oh Lord, and they're teachable. They want to be formed by what they've learned. Even if you are brilliant intellectually, you cannot come to Jesus because of your brilliant brain. You have to come to him like a child. You could have 30 PhDs. You still have to come to him and say, I need a savior. I didn't earn my way here. By my great intellectual thinking, I came with open hands, saying, "I'm poor, and I need you." Those are the ones that God reveals Himself to. Uh, some of you, if you're new, may not know this. Uh, when I was hired at Parkway 2019, the original plan was for me to be kind of Parkway's first church plant. Me to pastor here for a couple of years and then go. Church plant, the Lord has somewhat rerouted those uh, plans. But for the first two years, as I was planning to go plant the church, I was picking people's brains. I was meeting with other pastors in the area and just saying people who had planted churches and saying, "Okay, what should I be doing? What should I be praying for? And one of the things I, I really wanted to know was, how do I raise up elders on a church plant? I just want to plant by myself. I want to plant with a plurality. And probably the most consistent uh, advice I got from literally dozens. Uh, of men was exactly what Jesus is praying here. How How do I raise up elders, I would ask. And over and over and over and over again, they would say, look for the men who are humble, who are hungry and who are teachable and run as fast as you can from the guy who's skilled and is very much ready to show you how skilled he is. Run as fast as you can from the suave guy who in all of his stories, everybody else is the dummy and he's the smart one there with the fix. They may be skilled, sprint from that person. Look for the humble, look, from the hung- look for the hungry, look for the teachable. Those are the ones who are gonna put themselves beneath the fountain and say, here's what the Lord wants us to do. Those are the ones who God reveals himself to. They're essentially just pointing me back to this prayer. Look for the ones who won't miss Jesus when he walks by. Okay, so reveals himself to the humble, those who know that they need him. The sinners who say, son of David, have mercy on me. I've got nothing except you. And he hides himself in the wise who says, no, thanks, I think I'm good. Healthy, righteous, what do I need you? Now notice one more thing before we move on to the next point Look at how much joy fills the heart of your God as a result of your humility. Look at verse 26. Jesus is praying, "Thank you that you hid these things from the wise, revealed them to the humble," it says in verse 26, "Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will." Literally in the Greek, "for so it pleased you well." It pleases the heart of the father to show the humble his son your humility makes jesus so excited that after his harshest rebukes of the prideful he breaks out thinking his father you want to know how to miss jesus put a lot of trust in your own understanding you want to know how to fill the heart of jesus with delight be humble be hungry for him be teachable Be poor in spirit. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So, ask yourselves, be honest with yourselves. Paul will say terrifying things to us like work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Am I wise in my own eyes? Or do I have this sort of childlike, humble desperation? For him. Jesus is being so graciously clear for us here. You want to have a worse destiny than Sodom and Gomorrah? Trust in your own wisdom. You want to delight the heart of your God? Be humble. So, which side does your heart fall on? Are you constantly angry at our dumb world? Does seeing the foolishness of the world, it is foolishness. I'm not advocating for, it's an overblown, you know, it's horrible. But does that make your heart angry and bitter and want them to, I don't know, die? I don't know. Or does the heart move you to prayer? Do you love your enemy? Do you pray for those who persecute you as you see the actual foolishness of the world? Do you just wish they were a bit more smart like you and all of our problems would go away? When I say the words mask mandates, Did something just happen in your heart? There you go. I just did it for you. Are you very, very, very good at pointing out everybody else's problems? Like really good at it. Like it's all you do all the time. Might be an indicator. Are you, do you view yourself, just be honest, be honest. Do you view yourself as a smart one surrounded by a world full of morons? And if you do, your Savior is here saying, repent, be childlike. He's giving us a gracious warning here. Do you have that sort of over-dependence on your own intellect or does your heart cry out, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I have convictions that I would die for, yes, but only because he opened my blind eyes. I was lost, and the more I tried to find my way back, the more lost I got. Then he found me. Are you humble? Are you hungry for him? Are you teachable? That's the only way under the fountain. That's the only way to receive, to get the revelation. That's who Jesus isn't rebuking, but turning to and praising God for. Flee to that group the childlike. So that's who gets the revelation, the hungry, the humble, the childlike. Now, next, who gives the revelation? We know it's Jesus, but let me unpack the verses anyway. Okay, verse 27. Who gives the revelation? All things have been handed over to me, Jesus, by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So who gives the wisdom? We see right at the end, the son gets to choose who he reveals the father to. But before that, Jesus qualifies himself. Jesus is the one, I give the revelation of who I am and by implication who God is. But before he says that, he qualifies himself with one of the most amazing statements in scripture. It's one of those verses that makes it impossible to ever read the Bible the same way again. What does he say? First he says, all things are handed over to me by the Father. So one of the things that's making the cities prideful, one of the things that's making the cities that have just rejected Jesus that Lee preached on trust in their understanding is they've had handed over to them these kind of rabbinic traditions, the traditions of men. We'll see Jesus when he actually goes toe-to-toe with the Pharisees, begins to rebuke them for putting the yoke of the traditions of men rather than the law of God on those who follow them. So they've got their own theology textbooks, if you will, and that's what they're trusting in. It's been handed down and that's what they're really confident in. And Jesus is saying, something's been handed down to me as well and it's everything. And it was handed down to me uh, by uh, God. So put that in your pipe and smoke it, right? That's what Jesus is saying. That's a little flair I added. That's in the message version if you read that. Uh, okay. So Jesus, first of all, you've got your stuff that's handed down, so do I. And then he takes it one step, one step further. Verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by the Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son. Notice what Jesus is saying. He's not saying... I sat down in a classroom and God taught me a whole bunch of information. And it took a long time, but I eventually absorbed it all. He's saying, how did I get all that I know? I'm God's eternal son who has known him from infinity before let there be light. He's giving us here a very unique glimpse into our Trinitarian God. In fact, if you read the Gospel of John... Uh, this is, this language is everywhere and it's rare in, in the other three gospels. And I was reading the commentaries and there's one theory, I don't think it's a good one. So I'm not advocating for it, but there's one theory that like John jumped in right now and was like, hang on, Matthew, let me write this paragraph. And then he jumped back out just cause it's so similar to John. Uh, but I think that's wrong. But Matthew nonetheless is saying before let there be lights before Genesis one, one, what was God doing? I'll tell you what he was doing. He was eternally, perfectly knowing and loving and rejoicing in his eternal son. And the son, Jesus, in turn, was eternally loving and knowing and searching the depths of and mining the treasures of his father. I think that qualifies him to reveal who God is. Not only does he know, nobody else knows the infinite depths of that he knows, And just as a sidebar, let this inform your view of God. When we talk about God being personal, I don't just mean he generically cares for you sometime. I mean the person of the Father has been eternally loving the Son, and so when he saves you and you're united to the Son, he turns and pours out on you what he's been pouring out on Jesus for all eternity. That's what I mean by God is personal. And I think that will obliterate a cold, distant view of God when you sit down to pray. Let the Bible's declaration of your unbelievable, wonderful God inform what pops into your mind when you say, Heavenly Father, or when you crack open the next thing to read on your Bible reading plan. This God, when you're united to his Son, loves you with the same love. That's not my notes, and so therefore I'm off now. But Jesus is giving us this glimpse here into how wonderful his God is, and he knows it because he has known the Father for all eternity, and the Father has known him for all eternity, and now, wonder of all wonders, he is here to reveal what he knows He's here to crack open the treasure chest of eternity of the Father's heart and of his heart and saying, this is for you now. This is why I'm here to reveal it to you. John 7, 29, I know him, speaking of the Father, for I have come from him and he sent me. Why did the Father send the Son? For this very purpose. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God. No one knows God, no one has ever seen God except the only God who is at the Father's side, the Son, the Word, Jesus Christ, and he has made him known. Jesus is quite qualified to bring the revelation of who God is. And don't miss the point of all this. He's not just saying, here's my relationship with the Father. He's saying, I'm here to reveal the glories of God. That I know. Anyone I choose to reveal it to will know the Father as well. Not just know about Him, know Him. Be loved by Him. Love Him because He first loved us and enter into fellowship with Him. John 17, 26. Jesus praying to the Father right before He's about to go to the cross in the Gospel of John. I made known to them, His disciples, Your name, Father. And I will continue to make it known, look at this, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus is not just bringing us facts. He's bringing us the reality we were made for. The most wonderful thing imaginable. I'm here so that you can know. The one who molded you in your mother's womb. The one who keeps your heart beating. The one who for eternity you will dwell with in infinite joy. I'm here so that you can be brought in to this glorious fellowship. That's what we get in this one little verse. We can know him and the love with which he's loved the son may be in us. So Jesus brings the revelation, and he's quite qualified to do so, and it is unbelievable. I bet when you read these first two verses, you were like, blah, 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 blah. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. We'll just get through the first part, right? You see what he's saying here before he actually begins to crack open his heart. Do you see this anticipation building for what you will receive if you do come to him? The humble get it. Jesus gives it to whom he wills, and now we get to actually see what it is, or rather who it is. We get to see the revelation of God. We get to see God crack open his heart. We get to see into Jesus' heart, and when we see him, we see the Father. So last part, who is the revelation? Verse 28. Goodness, this is going to be difficult. Okay. Come to me, All who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So as Jesus is going to finally show us the revelation, the first thing he does is call us. The first thing. Come to me, all who are labor or all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." This, by the way, is not a passive invitation. This is a great exclamation. This is a "Come on, Run to me. I will give you rest. If you're tired, come to me. The one who's had his eyes fixed on you, who's known you've been chosen from before the foundations of the world were laid, has now come to you and is telling you. Come to me. He stepped off his throne so that he can call you. Come to me. And look who he calls. He calls the burdened. All who labor and are heavy laden. He calls the burdened. He calls the weary. He calls the tired. Notice this. Please don't think you need to clean yourself up. You need to unburden yourself before you can come to him. Your burdens are a prerequisite to him calling you. Please don't think, I'll splash some water on my face and I'll get kind of a snowball effect going where I'm conquering my sin and I'll just kind of bank some good works and then I'll go to him and then I'll say I'm sorry. So he's like, okay, I wasn't gonna forgive you when you were that big of a sinner, but now that you're this big, I can swing that. Please don't think that that will keep you away from him and that will keep your burden heavier. Your burdens are what qualifies you to hear his call. He doesn't call the righteous. He doesn't call the healthy. He calls the burdened. He's calling you because you are burdened and because you're tired and because you're broken. Don't run from that. Lean into that. And notice he calls you not to a 10-step program to how you lay down your burden. He's just calling you to himself. Come to me, I will give you rest. So he calls you, and then next, verse 29, here's where we actually get the revelation of who he is. Here's where Jesus, this is the Charles Spurgeon verse where he cracks open his heart and tells us who he is. Verse 29, come to me, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am. Now, before we keep reading, Just put your finger there on your iPhones or if you're real old school, your paper Bible. Put your finger on the word am. What would you expect him to say? What would you expect him to say? Jesus one time says, I am. Here's what my heart is like. What would you expect him to say? Would you expect him to say holy? Isaiah 6, like the angels flying around, the presence of God, holy, holy, holy. Would you expect him to say holy? Holy. Would you expect him to say, my heart is righteous? What would you expect him to say as you begin to realize that the one standing before you is the holy king of the universe and you're a sinner and you've rebelled not just against some moral laws, you've rebelled against him. You've rejected him. And as you begin to think of the reality, kind of like Tim talked about today, of what does it mean to be in the presence of the living God as a sinner as that reality sets in, your knees begin to tremble because I'm in the presence of the Holy God who is just. Would you expect him to say, I'm just and therefore I'm going to pour out my wrath on you, O sinner. What would you expect him to say and what does he say? He opens his heart and says, I am gentle and I am lowly to the sinner to the rebel, to the wicked, to the weary, to the burdened, he is gentle and he's lowly. What does he mean? Gentle. This is a way, it's humble. I'm meek. I'm gentle. The word that gentle normally means. Dane Ortland, who used to work for Crossway Publishers and then now is a pastor, wrote a book that was flew off the shelves a couple of years ago called Gentle and Lowly. It was on this passage. Uh, I recommend it. And he says this. Jesus, speaking of Jesus' gentleness, says, Jesus is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, sinner. It's not a pointed finger, but open arms. The posture most natural to him most natural to his heart, is not a pointed finger, ashamed of you because you're not good enough, but rather gentle, open arms ready to receive you. He's gentle and then he's lowly, which is a way of saying he's come low. He's the high king of the universe and is he born in the palaces in a golden encrusted crib? No, he's born in a manger. He's the one who made the stars. All the stars shine for his glory. And Does he hang out with the kings and the emperor in Rome. No, he hangs out and eats with sinners. He's come very low for those who are low. He's, if you like, accessible. Daniel Ortland, again, speaking of his lowliness, says this, for all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. Now again, this is a sidebar, so it's dangerous. It's not my notes. Does that form your view of who he is? The Jesus who's at the right hand of the Father right now looking down upon all of us is not a figment of our imagination. He's telling us right now who he is. When you sin, do you know you have a gentle and lowly Savior with his arms open? Or do you think... He's probably really mad. He's probably regretting that whole redemption thing. Again, let me bank a couple weeks of no sin. And then I'll go to him and say, sorry for that one. We're good though, right? Because I performed really well for you. i banked some good morals. Thomas Goodwin, who's a a Puritan who wrote a book called uh, The Heart of Christ, centering on this idea, uh, says in the book, he's a Puritan, so I'm just going to summarize it. I'm I'm weeding out all the vows and thys and all those sorts of things. Um, He he says, Jesus knows that when we think of him as holy, we, we think of him as just a stodgy moralist. And so to undo our false view of him, he comes down and he says, here's who I am. Stop thinking that ridiculous thing that you think. Stop listening to the serpent in the garden lying to you about my character. Here's who I am. I'm gentle and I'm lowly and I'm here so that you'll come to me and you'll actually find rest and you'll stop trying to find rest and all these other things that just lead to a heavier burden. He's cracked open his heart that he might draw you near. I'm gentle and I'm lowly. He's giving us a gaze into the heart of the living God so that we might never view him wrongly again. He wants you to see him and he wants you to run to him, not away from him with your false view of him. So he calls, he reveals his heart. And again, don't think sweet Jesus, but angry father. Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the father. I'm the perfect exact image of God. You see my heart, you see the father's heart, his gentle and lowly hearts. He reveals who he is. And then the last thing we see in verse 28 is what happens to us. What happens to us when we see, when we know, when we come to him and actually receive the revelation of God and come to this gentle and lowly savior? Verse 28, again, come to me all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we see when we come to him, we get three things. Rest. We get a teacher, we can learn from him, and we get a yoke, we get a burden. Let's walk through these things. Number one, you get rest. You get to lay down the burden that is crushing you. And this idea of rest here isn't just relief, it's also refreshment. He's not just taking off the heavy thing that's hurting you, he's filling you with life. He's not just removing the negative, he's filling you with positive right? Uh, I played football in high school because I grew up here in Texas, and that is uh, a law. You have to play if you're a male. Uh, If you're a military-aged male, you must play high school football. Um, And because my coaches had seen uh, Remember the Titans too many times, we got very few water breaks because water is for cowards. Water makes you weak. Water's for washing blood off that. I'm just kidding, I won't go through it. Um, But then people started dying, so it's now illegal to do the three days that we did. That's just a fun fact. But the one water break we would get a day was the most glorious thing. As we're hallucinating, as not an exaggeration, 14 people on my team my freshman year went to the hospital with dehydration. We get some water, and yes, we're relieved because we're not running 400s and hitting each other on this rock-infested football field but actually we're just feeling life come to us, We're being refreshed to go back out and do this ridiculous thing that we call fun. Football in 90,000 degree weather. I've got a lot of unresolved issues as you're seeing. Um, If you're a football coach here, please don't feel offended. I'm not attacking you, Ty. Uh, Okay, he wasn't my coach. Uh, Okay, what were we talking about Jesus? Okay, so you see his heart here. You actually get rest and this rest isn't just I'm taking off the burden. I'm filling you with life so that in this difficult life that we've been looking at all through Matthew, you know you have a gentle and lowly shepherd with you. In the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, I can have comfort. I can have rest. I can be filled with the life of God. This is a type of renewing rest. That's the first thing we see, just rest. Second thing, learning, which you might've just kind of blown by. I did the first couple of times I read this, but just the reality of Again, as a humble child in the posture of wanting to learn, you have a teacher here. You have someone who's gentle and lowly and is going to lead you to the green pastures in this wilderness of a world. I'm going to lead you to the green pastures. I'm going to lead you to the still waters. We get someone to teach us. Someone who says, as we'll see at the end of Matthew, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. And then the last thing we see might be somewhat confusing to us. We get another burden. We get a yoke from him. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So Jesus offers not just to take off something, but to put on something. I'm going to offer you a yoke. I'm going to offer you a burden, which a yoke, if you're not a farmer, uh, it's what you put on an animal to you know, pull something. I'm also not a farmer. That's why that was a horrible summary. But you put it on. It's, it's for pulling, making things easier. And then we get another burden here. So again, you might think, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about taking things off. Why is he adding weight to our back? And this is where we don't misunderstand Jesus. Jesus is not here to fix all of your problems so that you can go back to living however you wanted. Because living however you wanted is how you got the weight on your back in the first place. Rather, what he's showing us here is the way you actually find rest, the way you take the heavy burden that's crushing you off your back is by taking on his burden. His burden that gives life, the burden of giving your life to him as we've seen in Matthew, the burden of serving him as we've seen all throughout Matthew, the burden of enjoying him, this burden that's a non-burden. His burden is easy and it's light. It's not painless. We've seen this mission in this pain-filled world will be difficult. But in the midst of the pain, there is unspeakable joy. And in the midst of the exhaustion with his yoke and his burden, there is a incomprehensible rest. There's a peace that surpasses all understanding. Read the Psalms and count how many times the psalmist is surrounded by his enemies that are sprinting towards him to kill him. And he breaks out in praise. You prepare a table before me, this place of celebration in the presence of my enemies. Psalm 27 Armies are camping around David, and what does he say? I've got one thing to ask, God, that I might dwell in your house all the days of my life and gaze upon your beauty. In the midst of the crazy difficult, there's this joy that just flows to the heart of one who knows God, who's taken on the light burden of Jesus. You're actually relieved of your burden by taking on his burden. One of the things that our postmodern uh, culture will yell at you is you will be the freest. You will be your true self if you rid yourself of all uh, restraints. If you just feel who you are here and live it out. Be your truest self by just eliminating anyone who would tell you what to do and any self-imposed something on you that uh, you know would, would restrain your. Break that off and you should be your true self. That's how you're the freest. And that has led to, I think, the most miserable society, maybe in human history, versus Jesus says here, actually, St. Augustine, one of the things he draws out on this subject is he says, quite simply, you were made by God for God in his image. Therefore, the most human you will be, the freest you will ever be, the most yourself you will ever be is when you're walking in his ways. And he had this saying where he said, uh, true freedom is being a slave to the right master. Think of heaven. In heaven, you will not have the freedom to sin. You won't be able to. You could want to. You won't be able to. You won't have the freedom to sin. So my question is, is heaven, is glory with God just an eternal prison? Or will you be exactly who you were made to be? Because you will be like him. As you gaze into his face, we will be like him. We will see him as he is. You see that. Jesus knows that. And so he's saying, you want true freedom. You want true rest. You want to be who you were made to be. Take on this yoke. Take on this light and easy burden. There's rest. There's a teacher for you. And there is a gloriously light burden for you that actually gets you to be the freest you could ever be. So my final call to you is just repeating his words here. Come to him. Lay your burdens down. Lay the burden of sin down that he's paid for. You have forgiveness being held out for you. You have adoption to know this God that Jesus has known for all eternity. You have fellowship with the living God that you were made for being offered to you. Lay your burdens down. Come to him. Let him Remove it. Lay down your burden of good works. Notice here he says, I will give you rest. This is not a transaction. This is a gift. The more you try to earn this rest, the heavier the burden on your back will get. It's only by coming to him and receiving as a gift that you can actually lay down your burden. And some of you, I just acknowledge this may be difficult because you probably have a lot of your identity Wrapped up in your burden. Your identity, one of the primary things is maybe you want to be a good mom, which is a good thing. But then the second your kid acts up in public, you just feel the weight of the world on your shoulders because you have so much of your worth wrapped up in the success of being a good mother or perhaps work. And so you're working, and if you're not getting noticed, what's wrong? You know, it's something off that's happening, and all of a sudden you're powerless because you put all your worth in other people's hands, or maybe being accepted socially. You're the funny guy, and you better keep being funny because if you stop being funny, nobody's going to like you anymore. Or if this person has more friends than you, then what's wrong with you? And you're paralyzed by others' opinions of you. Isn't that crushing you? Do you feel the weight of that? You have someone standing in front of you saying, come and rest, and the one telling you to come is the only one who can actually take the burden off of your back. He's the only one who can give you a light burden. He's the only one that can actually bring this true freedom and not just freedom from pain, but infinite joy of knowing him and knowing the father that he has known for all eternity. Come to him. Don't be like the cities who say, I'm good. I've got it up here. My, my life is pretty good. I don't think I need... Jesus, don't be the people who think they don't need him. Quit looking for rest in the rest of the world. You won't find any of it there. It is only found in him. Only, can he, only he can give you rest, and his arms are forever open. His heart is eternally gentle and lowly for you. Hear his words as we close. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, as I confessed at the beginning of this sermon, I, we need you to speak Like Paul in Ephesians 1, I just pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, Lord. We wouldn't behave the way we behave if we grasped this. I'm just more and more convinced that all of our problems flow from not believing you, from reading unthinkable statements like the ones your son says here and just saying, maybe, but what's for lunch? And so I just pray that you would terrify us, set our eternity before us, whatever you need to do, but change us. Speak to us by your spirit and let us live as these people who are just happy. Not because our life is so great, but because the burden's been lifted. We have the light, easy burden on our back. We're just joyful because we know the glories of being forgiven. We don't feel the weight of your condemnation because we know the truth. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We just have this rest, that things can be crumbling in our lives, but we know this life, life is a vapor compared to eternity with you. And like Paul, we can say these are light momentary afflictions. They're not worth comparing to the glory that's to come to us. Make us people who have that yoke and make us people who carry your son's light burden and make us a people who, as we do, your name is glorified. Your your gospel is spread just by how we live that we might again in a in a strange way confuse the world by those looking on and saying why are you so happy all the time why do you simply just walk this way this should be stressing you out you should be more scared than you are you should be walking in more fear than you are but you just seem happy why is that and we have one answer it's your son We've taken on his light burden. He's taken off the crushing weight that we've been carrying for far too long. I just pray that that would be a reality. Rather, we're coming to him for the first time or for the thousandth time that we would lay it down. Help us do that, especially as we go to your table, Lord, and look towards his atoning sacrifice for us. We pray that in your son's name. Amen.